Today I invite you to turn this morning to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, uh, either in your own copy of God's Word or in the Pew Bible in front of you, verses 25 to 37. And as you turn to Luke chapter 10, we're starting our Advent series, and our series is going to focus on how the incarnation of God the Son, so that is the arrival of Jesus as a true human being born of the Virgin Mary, how that matters to our everyday life. And it seems to me that nothing is more important for our everyday life than the love of God, uh, which is why we're starting here in this passage this morning. Uh, Though maybe for you that doesn't seem like such an obvious place to start. Maybe for you talking about God's love is a little bit of like talking about a philosophy of love. It's a, you know, interesting idea. It may even be true. Sometimes it feels comforting, but I just don't see how it affects the way that I treat my children or how it changes the way I repair conflicts with my spouse or how I handle politics at the office or at school or how I make friends or how I act around my friends, how I do my job. Maybe for you, the love of God is just sort of this amorphous, undefined idea that lacks any real practical application. Or maybe for you, the love of God doesn't seem to matter because it just doesn't seem to be true. Uh, Maybe for you, the word love and the word God just don't go together for some reason. Maybe because for you, God is distant or uncaring or spiteful, hateful, capricious. Uh, Capricious kids mean someone who suddenly and without warning changes their behavior. Um, And so you you can't see how any idea of love worth believing in could be connected to a God that you are envisioning. Uh, so for you, the love of God is not an abstract idea. It's just a, a contradiction. Uh, if you're in either of those places or even somewhere else, the Bible wants to meet you where you're at. And God in the Bible wants you to know that the love of God is not a contradiction or an abstraction. It's real and it's practical and it's helpful. The, the Bible wants us to have comfort and help and be transformed by the belief that, as John says, God is love. And God is love because of the way he practically and daily lives with us in compassion and mercy and kindness and generosity. The Bible wants us to know that it is the love of God which saves us. It's the love of God which helps us and which changes us. And that the love of God has a name, and that name is Jesus. Yeah. And to see that, we're going to reflect on Jesus' famous parable of the Good Samaritan, which, while it has a lot of things to say about our love, has something, I think, incredibly profound to say about God's love and what it means and what we should mean when we say that God loves us and when we quote the Bible saying, God is love. Uh, So let's read Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, and then we're going to begin our reflection this morning. Luke chapter 10. Chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Let's hear God's word. Uh, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him and whatever more you spend. I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Thus far the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, please bless your word to us this morning. Teach us, Use it to teach us how deep and high and broad your love is for us in Christ and just how amazing it is for us to be able to say that you love us. Father, we know that we will not get to this place, though, unless your Spirit blesses us. So we ask that your Spirit now would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe your word. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher, and may the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage begins just after Jesus has sent out 72 disciples to tell people about the kingdom of God. And in the Bible, the kingdom of God is where God lives with his people in peace and in joy and in holiness. It's where he lives in forgiveness and in welcome. And in that like, it can be helpful to think of the kingdom of God, like the book of Revelation does, as this gigantic city where there's nothing to be afraid of in it. Because sin has been dealt with, death has been conquered, division has been healed, darkness has been banished by the light of God's own goodness. And the disciples were sent out to tell the people that the kingdom of God had arrived in Jesus, and, and not just tell them, but to show them. And in Jesus' name, they were driving out demons, they were healing the sick, and giving God's peace to those who were around them. It's this incredible event, and then after they returned, celebrating what they had been able to do in Jesus' name, Jesus tells them, don't rejoice that the demons listen to you, but rejoice that you're part of the kingdom of God. And then he prays out loud, to the Father in verse 21, which is just before our passage, thanking him for revealing the kingdom of God, not to the wise and understanding, but to little children. And just to point out, in the ancient world, children were just, just above slaves in social importance. And so what Jesus is celebrating is that the first people God the Father sent the good news of the kingdom to were those who were ignored, overlooked, dismissed, was to those who had no power, to those who were in fact not seen as fully human outside of Jewish circles. So in Roman and Greek society, slaves were considered less than human and children were usually talked about as pre-humans. So they had to become human. They were not fully matured adults. And actually very sadly to me, C.S. Lewis, I think trying to be poetic, says something like this in one of his writings where he says that children are becoming more human as they learn. That's not true. Do not believe that. Humans are humans. Uh, so this celebration of God 
bringing his kingdom of joy and peace and compassion and, and safety to the lowest in society, that triggered something in this lawyer. Maybe it was jealousy. Why them first and not me? Maybe it was fear. Since I'm not part of that social strata, am I going to be left out of God's kingdom? I think those are fears we can understand. I think those were probably in the background. Uh, but what was at the heart of the lawyer's question, what he foregrounds was a sense of unfairness. And I say that because he asked Jesus in verse 25, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So at the core of his question is, how do I become worthy of the gift those people have gotten? And frankly, given the fact that the contrast is between a lawyer and children, it's not unreasonable to hear in that question a kind of rebuke because children cannot obey the law as well as adults can, let alone as well as lawyers can. And that's for a number of reasons, not least of which because children don't have the self-control that adults do. <laughs> uh, they also don't have and cannot have the perspective necessary to know what commandment applies when. They just don't have the life experience and the wisdom yet to know the difference. And so when the lawyer stands up to test Jesus, I hear him asking Jesus, how can unimportant children, slaves, uh, paralytics, and people who were so anti-God they got possessed by demons, like what have they done to inherit eternal life? And if they've done it, I must have done it. So why are you not talking to me like I fit into this picture with them? And so Jesus replies to his question as he usually does by asking a question back. Verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer replies with the two most fundamental texts in all of the Old Testament for life with God among God's people, both of which notice deal with love. Verse 27, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then I find Jesus' reply here very interesting. It's definitely a little provoking. He says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So Jesus says, exactly. Go do that and you can have the kingdom too. <laughs> now, obviously the answer is, super confusing to the lawyer. It's meant to be provocative. And it should also be confusing and provocative for us too. Imagine if someone gave a million dollars to a six-year-old kid, just walks up and says, hey, here's a million dollars. And so you say, hey, what do I need to do to get a million dollars from you? And they reply, well, what do you think you need to do to get a million dollars? And you reply, work hard, save my money. And they say, exactly, go and do that. And I will give you a million dollars but the six-year-old didn't do that. Like, what is happening? <laughs> that's the context. And that's why the lawyer in verse 29 wanted to justify himself. And that justifying could be read in two ways. It could be read as the lawyer wanting to show that he had in fact obeyed all those commandments and so deserved it. Or it could be read as the lawyer wanting to show that his implied accusation of Jesus's unfairness was justified and that Jesus was being just ridiculously unfair and a little bit capricious, and that's what I think it is. And so he asked Jesus a question, who is my neighbor? Uh, which itself is extremely interesting, right? He's saying, 
as we probably all would say if Jesus asked us this question, I know who God is and I know how to love him. And I know who my neighbor is and I know how to love my neighbor, but I want to make sure we're on the same page as to who my neighbor is. Who does God want me to love as myself? Which human being deserves my love? Which human beings get my love? Which human beings ought to have my love? And which can I let go? That is the question behind and who is my neighbor. And that brings us to our second point. So Jesus answers that question with this parable. And kid, pa kids, parable is just the Greek word for story. So I don't know why we don't just translate it as story and not parable. It's just a story. So Jesus is telling a story. So Jesus tells a story in verse 30 about a man who is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And as he's walking alongside of the road, Jesus says he's attacked by robbers who stripped him, beat him, and left him there, leaving him half dead. Now, all those details are extremely important. The man is naked, so you cannot tell by his clothing where he's from or how rich or poor he is. And all his money is gone, so you can't tell where he's from by his regional coinage. And particularly, you also can't tell that he's just come from Jerusalem. So when Jesus' listeners heard that the man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, they would assume that the man had gone to Jerusalem in order to worship God. And that would mean exchanging his Roman money or whatever currency he had for temple money. The, the money changers that Jesus drives out of the temple, that was their job. Uh, so his money is gone. Uh, so you wouldn't be able to tell this man had just gone to worship. You have, to, you have no hint of where he's from. You don't know his ethnic identity. You don't know his wealth. You don't know his piety. He's just a man, naked, half dead on the side of the road. And now that half dead detail is important too. Remember the purity laws. They've come up a few times this year. Um, the purity laws of the old covenant governed how God's people dealt with things that brought them, remember, to the boundary between wholeness and brokenness, sickness and health, life and death. This man, Jesus says very clearly, is on the boundary of life in death. He's half dead. And then Jesus says, by chance, a priest was going down the road and happened on this man. But when he saw him, he passed by on the other side, and then later on a Levite does the same thing. Now here's the thing. This is very important. There's a mistaken idea I've seen that God's old covenant law forbids touching a half dead or all dead body. It does not. It does not. What it does is forbid that person who has touched a half-dead or all-dead body from entering worship until purification is made. That purification takes time. It involves some expense. You have to make some sacrifices. You have to wait. Uh, and it was definitely inconvenient at times, especially if you are a priest or a Levite whose job is to help with worship at the temple. So if these men, the priest and the Levite, if they touched this man, if they helped this man, they would not be able to do their job for a short while until purification has been made. That's why they pass by on the other side. And Jesus' listeners understood this. And so they heard Jesus saying, the priest and the Levite did not want to be inconvenienced. Helping this man... Uh, was going to be messy, it was going to be difficult, it was going to be uncomfortable, and there's no guarantee of reward 
or that I'm even going to like the kind of person he turns out to be. And I won't be able to do my job. I'll have to go through all these purification rituals for someone that I might not care for at the end. And so in this story, these two characters, they judge that this man is not worthy of being loved like they themselves are loved. But then along comes a Samaritan. And remember, Samaritans and Jews were enemies. There's a, there's a bitter history of exploitation, slavery, and warfare between these two groups. You know that. I think we've talked about that. But here's something maybe you didn't know. The Samaritans and the Jews followed the same Old Covenant purity laws. But when the Samaritan man comes along, the text says in verse 33 that when he saw him, he had compassion. And just to point out that for God, compassion is foundational to love. And so having compassion on him, the Samaritan picks up this naked man, binds his wounds, and lays him on his own donkey. Our text says animal donkey shows up in other gospels. Uh, so this hurt man rides, and the Samaritan walks. And by the way, uh, donkeys were vehicles of the wealthy. Uh, I said this, I think, last year or two years ago, um, much to Dave's chagrin. Uh, nowhere in the gospels does it say that Mary rides a donkey. Jesus' family is not wealthy. That image actually comes from medieval art, where the artist wants to show that Mary is bearing the king of peace, and so they paint her on a donkey. But that's not textual. Mary walked as a pregnant woman. This man is a wealthy man. He has a donkey. The Samaritan walks. The sick, poor, naked man, he rides. And then he takes this man to an inn, and he pays for his lodging and his care, while he goes and completes his business. But importantly, he adds this in verse 35, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And that's important because if the innkeeper spent more than the two denarii on this man, then the beaten man would have been on the hook for that debt. But he doesn't have any money, right? Well, in the ancient world, that meant the innkeeper could sell that man into slavery to pay off his debt to him. So the Samaritan kept him from being a slave by promising to return and pay all his debts. So for the, the Samaritan, he wasn't just helping him in that moment, but for the long term. I mean, the guy's half dead. Recovery is going to take weeks, months. And the Samaritan says, I'll come back as often as I need to to make sure he gets the care that he needs. I will pay for his healing. I will pay for his freedom. And then the story ends there. And then Jesus asks another question. Only notice, pay careful attention to what Jesus asks. Remember, the story started by the lawyer asking, and who is my neighbor, right? Who deserves my love? Jesus asks in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Jesus flips the entire thing around. The question is not, who is my neighbor? It's, will you be a neighbor? Mr. Rogers was right all along. Um, the, the question isn't, who deserves my love and who does not? It's, will I show love even when it is difficult, and hard, and scary, and inconvenient, even when it requires long-term commitments and sacrifices. And that brings us to our final point. 
My friends, what the incarnation of God the Son tells us is that Jesus took on flesh so that he could love us as his neighbor. You see, for God, loving us by giving us life, by giving us rain and sunshine, sustaining us, even giving us the Holy Spirit, was not sufficient to show his love. No, he wanted to be our neighbor so that he could love us as fully and totally and perfectly as possible, so that he could love us with long-term commitment and long-term care and bring freedom and hope and health and wholeness to us as his people because he loves us. God takes on flesh so that he can laugh with us and cry with us and work alongside us and carry us and bind our wounds and be our friend, as the Bible says, in the fullest sense possible. The incarnation is how God keeps his own commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves by becoming our neighbor in order to love us as he loves himself. And he did that because he has compassion on us. Like the Samaritan who saw the man on the side of the road, Jesus looks down from heaven and he saw our brokenness and he came near to repair us and to make us whole. He looked down from heaven and he saw our sin and he came near to forgive us. He looked down from heaven and he saw our sickness and frailty and came down to heal us and to bear us up and to carry us. Jesus saw us at our weakest and most vulnerable and most exposed and moved with compassion, he came down to bring us freedom and life with him forever, paying all our debts, doing the things that we never could do to enter into life for us. Going back a second to the confusing answer that Jesus gave to the lawyer's question, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' whole point of that exchange and the point of this parable is nothing. Because we're all helpless on the side of the road. We are all beggars and children who need God's mercy. We're all fools who need God's wisdom. We are all weak who need God's strength if we are going to enter into his kingdom. And Jesus comes down in order to give it to us freely, in order to save us because he is our neighbor who loves us. My friends, the beauty of the incarnation, that is the beauty of God taking on a body in Jesus, is that Jesus became, and in fact remains, our neighbor. Because from the moment of his implanting in the womb of Mary, Jesus has and will always have a true human body. And our triune God chose to arrange it this way so that we could be assured that he will always prove to be our neighbor. He will always save us. He will always help us. He will always have compassion on us. And so let's end by going back to the thing that started all of this. Jesus thanking God that he had given the kingdom of God to children. Uh, remember, the kingdom is about life with God and joy and peace and love. Jesus was rejoicing that he could give this gift to those who were socially half dead alongside of the road. He's rejoicing that he gets to be a neighbor who can show God's compassionate love to every kind of person, the poor, the weak, the children, and the lawyer. My friends, when we say that God is love, we are saying that our God is our neighbor who draws near to help us 
He is the God who comes near in times of need and in times of joy to give us what we need to enter into the kingdom of God and into life with him. And so if you're someone who's struggling to see how God's love and the incarnation matters to your daily life, I hope this helps you see that it's because of God's love that you can be confident that Jesus is with you as your helper. And I hope it opens your eyes to seeing the presence of Jesus in your everyday life because he draws near to us as his people every day to love us. And if you were someone who was struggling to see how the love of God and the love of, how love and God could go together, uh, I hope this helps you see that God, so Jesus the Father and the Holy Spirit, hope he helps you to see them more clearly and that it gives you hope that God is drawing near to you in love this morning. And if you want to talk more about that, please find me after the service. But for all of us here at the end, I hope that as we enter into this Advent season, into this Christmas season, we can find joy at just how deep and high and wide and compassionate and practical the love of God is. And I hope it moves us to worship and to prayer and to rejoicing that God's love has a name, and that name is Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for becoming our neighbor in order to love us. Thank you for having compassion.